Before we begin, we'd like to note that the views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily represent the views of the Department of Defense or any of its components, including the U.S. Army, Navy, and Marine Corps, nor do they represent the views of any other agency of the U.S. government. listening to Combat Exclusion, where we explore the realities of the U.S. military's gender integration efforts. I'm Chandler, former Army officer and 2017 West Point grad. And I'm Johanna, an aspiring judge advocate and 2018 West Point grad. Thanks for joining us. The repeal of the policy has benefited the Army. That is really what drove the repeal of the policy. We have some incredible, incredible women in the infantry and armor branches, and our entire country should be so proud of them. Hello, everyone. Welcome to today's episode. Today, we are with Antonietta Rico. She is a fellow at Women in International Security Organization and a senior strategic communication specialist at GAP Solutions. She's also a journalist and former service member serving in the Army for six years and achieving the rank of staff sergeant. Hi, Tony. Thank you so much for being with us today. Hi, Chandler. Thanks so much for having me. Well, we're excited to get started with you. And so we're just going to open it up to you and give you the floor to tell us a little bit about yourself, um, why you chose to join the Army, and um, what your your time in service was like. Sure. Um, so I'm originally from California. I enlisted at 19 years old. Um, no real specific reason. <laughs> I was just 19. Um, I was a public affairs soldier, and my first duty station was at Fort Drum which was uh, quite warm and wonderful. <laughs> I was also stationed at JBLM, and I deployed to Iraq. Um, I'm currently, as Chandler mentioned, with a fellow at, at Women in International Security. And um, yeah, and I just served, after I got out of the military, I kind of worked in different organizations that are military-related, um, advocacy for service women. I worked as a journalist for Military Times and as a contractor for the government. Obviously, so you said you're a public affairs soldier. And during that time, you spent some time being attached to infantry units. And this was prior to gender integration occurring. So can you talk to us a little bit about your experience being attached to those maneuver units before it was open to women? Yeah, absolutely. You know, um, I think one of the questions that you guys had was, uh, you know, what was I doing when the combat exclusion policy uh, was lifted? I was actually already out of the military. I'm pretty sure, like, I toasted like a shot of tequila to all the women who would now be officially uh, recognized as serving in um, in combat arms. But you know, I'm not the first, and I never have been attacked. One of the first attached to common arm units, there have been so many women um, ranging decades back who have been in combat arms units, but just, uh, you know, quote unquote, attached. Um, So my experience was, uh, you know, I was journalist, we would go, uh, we were deployed, we would attach with infantry and really any other unit but primarily with infantry units out on missions, out on um, 
any patrol that they were doing, just any sort of um, mission that the guys had would be attached um, to them. And, you know, um, I would take photos, right, interview, etc., while following them out on those missions. So that's that's really interesting that you you kind of mentioned there that you know you you weren't the first and you're certainly not the last and that um, you know women have been attached to combat arms units forever and 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 it's nice to know that you know that you can kind of recognize that you were part of that um, and so my question is about your experience there and um, we you know we've heard a lot from officers and what it was like to be part of units before general integration, the combat policy was repealed, but can you speak a little bit to what it was like to be enlisted in that sphere um, and, and, and how that shaped your, your view of the military? Yeah, you know, I, I can't really tell you what the different ones, because I don't know what it was like to be a woman officer in the military, you know, or in the army. Um, and honestly, my experience enlisted I think was really maybe pretty similar to the men uh, who were also doing my job as a PAO and being enlisted. Um, I think one thing that I can talk to you about is maybe uh, some of the work uh, that I've done as a fellow in women in international security um, post uh, the lifting of the combat exclusion policy. Um, because I followed both the experiences of women officers uh, in combat arms, as well as getting the chance to talk to some of the enlisted women in combat arms, um, the ones that have joined both armor units and infantry units. Um, And then just from the research that I've done as a fellow at Women in International Security, um, I can tell you that there are some pretty big differences. Um, their training is very different. Uh, you know, you go to basic training on the enlisted side, and uh, it's a lot different than going to like I-Bullock or A-Bullock. Uh, uh, when talking to both officers and enlisted about that training coming into combat arms, you know, I-Bullock and A-Bullock is a lot more like professional. Um, the people are older. Um, they're college educated, so they're uh, they've been um, they've had that experience for a couple of years. Uh, when you go to the infantry training as an enlisted woman, you're coming like most often straight out of high school. Um, you don't have those few years of experience in college, um, and you are also serving with like the same um, other men who are going through infantry training who have like uh, not as much experience um, in the professional field. So um, that's often very different, just the environment. It's not as professional as some of the women officers found it in Ibolic and Ibolic. And then um, another difference that they talked about is when they get to their unit. So as you know, a lot of the times the infantry, the enlisted infantry women, the enlisted armor women, live in the barracks with all the soldiers that they're with. Officers don't live in the barracks. So, you know, we found that the officers at the end of the day could like take a step back and go home and decompress. But at the end of the day, the enlisted infantry and armor women have to go back to their barracks and they're dealing with the same pressures that they were dealing all day. And it's also a very different environment in the barracks than it is at um, home. And then I think another one of the difference uh, that they talked about was just the difference in rank. Uh, when you're an officer, 
you know, if people don't like you, they still have to respect you. They have to salute you. A PFC can't come up to you as an officer and like tell you off without getting in trouble. When you're a private female in the barracks, nobody has to respect you. Um, uh, and so the people who don't like you are very open and willing to talk about how much they don't like you. Um, you know, I've talked to some infantry women who have literally gotten into fistfights with the men in their um, barracks. So um, th definitely rank doesn't protect you from some of them. I will say, though, that um, some of the women have found, you know, through training and also in their units, there's always like a couple of people who are like really great leaders. And I, I think that has made a big difference for them. Um, you know, someone that is willing to stand up for them, somebody that's willing to step in and just um, not think about the fact that they are women, but just mentor them and um, and accept them and be that role model for other soldiers. So there's always one or two, but um, you know, they're still fighting that battle with um, the others. Yeah, it's really interesting because you've both experienced being an enlisted service member and now you're learning from the experience of these women who have gone combat arms who are also enlisted service members, um, the fact that you're able to have that perspective. Uh, you spoke a little bit about some of the challenges that are unique to enlisted service women. Do you have any kind of like anecdotal experiences that you would be able to share with us or trends, something that gives a little bit of a general overview of these women that are crossing this frontier? Um, yeah, I think, you know, just what I described right now, just those difference in the training environment, um, those difference when first arriving at a unit um, and just like the living conditions, how they have to go back to the barracks. And then also those difference is in how they're treated because they don't have that rank. Um, I think those are the three biggest trends that um, I have identified when uh, talking to the women officers and the enlisted women. I guess additionally, I would say that um, enlisted women also have less of, um, I guess, mentorship or uh, less access to resources than some of the, of the women officers. Um, and it's just by the nature of uh, just not having that awareness of the resources that exist or those professional mentorship type of opportunities that women officers usually have. Um, let's see, I think one other trend that I forgot to mention is just uh, the different uh, experiences that they have in their career, right? So, you know, uh, women officers often talked about um, the challenges in their careers were often you know, from like the senior NCOs or um, their senior leader leadership and then just trying to establish themselves as an authority within their careers. And I think that for the enlisted women, the challenges were more like day to day, just in their living situation, in the barracks. Um, it wasn't so much about people questioning their authority because, you know, often they don't have much authority when they come into the army as privates and PFCs. Um, so it was just kind of more of a day-to-day -day struggle, not so much with their careers versus women officers who encountered a lot of like challenges to their authority 
um, and their careers. So I, I really like what you highlighted about the the differences between you know the officer experience and the and the enlisted experience, especially with regards to the mentorship aspect. I think we've heard echoed several times that um, women officers very much benefited from having you know, mentors that brought them under their wing and took care of them and protected them and, and brought them into the fold, right? Like, so like, Hey, you're part of our team now. And, and, you know, I'm going to treat you like you're part of my team. And it's interesting that you, you kind of say that that wasn't necessarily available to the enlisted, their enlisted counterparts, and they kind of suffered for that. And I also appreciate you mentioned the day-to-day aspect. I, you know, I guess I didn't even really, you know, you wrap your mind around you, the day-to-day experience of an enlisted soldier not being able to go home to their own space in comparison to um, what a, like a, a woman officer might have access to. So I think those are really um, like powerful points, and I appreciate you, you know, you highlighting them. Um, another another thing that I, I would like to ask you about is the family life and what that's like for enlisted service members um, versus officer service members Um, in regards to like you know motherhood and making challenges for you know becoming a military spouse I mean what any of your research has said about those things yeah um I don't think we've gone too much into that um I will tell you that you know I did speak to um a couple of enlisted women, and we did talk about that. Um, and taking a step back, I can say that really is also maybe it's about age, and just because uh, you know when officers come in, they usually had those four years of college, um, and they have just the more knowledge and more access to resources. So if they want to get birth control, they know where they can get it. They're able to speak about it openly. Uh, go to a doctor. And even though, you know, birth control is accessible to just anyone in the army, sometimes it's hard, I think, when you're younger to just uh, be open about that, talk about that, and have this access to the resources um, that you need. So I think that, um, you know, when you're older, you're more intentional about planning your family. And when you're like 19, and I'll say this for myself, because uh, you know, I was a 19-year-old enlisted soldier, and I was pregnant in the military um, when I was in the Army. You're just not, like, as intentional about planning your family as when you get a little bit older and you uh, mature more. So I definitely think that that's kind of a gap that we can fill in with our uh, junior enlisted uh, soldiers, just, um, you know, intentionally having those conversations. Because most often you, you're not really thinking about it when you're that young. Um, at least I'm speaking for myself, I will say that. Um, I Another aspect I do think is that family, especially for the officers, like family support, because, you know, uh, much more than the enlisted women I spoke to, the officers were married. And so that support from their spouse uh, for their job is really critical. Um, that they understand the demands of their job in combat arms. Um, so I think that's a difference in that too. That's definitely interesting, especially considering something that we have encountered a lot is the the challenges of particularly enlisted service women when it comes to childcare um, and things like that. So it's great to hear your perspective. Um, something that you mentioned just before that was the rank discrepancy, obviously, between female officers and um, enlisted service members and how that impacts 
their experience in integrated units. So something that we've kind of come across and talked to several people about is the leaders first policy. So I'm wondering if in your research, you've heard any feedback on that policy itself, either from officers or from enlisted service women, just the reality of that on the ground and whether that's something that's effective and helpful or something that breeds more challenges. I think that by and large, most of both the officers that I spoke to and enlisted women um, were not on board with the uh, uh, leaders first policy. Um, I think it was a good idea. It definitely had good intentions, but in the end, it really held back a lot of women and a lot of units from fully integrating. Um, it the intention was that you would have a leader there, right, who would be able to mentor the enlisted women when they came in. But I think one thing the Army failed to account for is that, you know, you have a junior officer who is themselves struggling with fitting in. And so um, and so they're trying to prove themselves. And um, a lot of the times, you know, some of the women would say, well, I don't want to be seen like I'm uh, give, you know, playing favorites with the other women. I don't want to be seen like I'm giving them breaks. So I'm just not going to talk to the enlisted women and kind of stay away from them. So it doesn't look like uh, I'm playing favorites. So that sort of like mentorship type of relationship that it was meant to instill, it just didn't really happen. And, you know, from one enlisted woman, one thing she said is like, I don't need a woman there to be my mentor. I need an experienced leader who has already been there for years to be okay with mentoring another woman. I don't want somebody who is just brand new and is struggling the same as as me to uh, help me out, you know? So I think really the key is not to have uh, women as leaders, but to be able to have everybody in the unit and men able to also mentor women and also able to lead women just the same way that they lead other men in their unions. I appreciate you highlighting that because um, we've heard that echoed. And so it's affirming, you know, just to hear that there are um, like, you know, enlisted service members who are saying like, I just want to be led by a senior leader who is going to be invested in me. And it's not, it doesn't have to be male or female or woman, man, whatever. It doesn't have to be something specific. It can just be someone who has experience. And I think that's why the leaders first policy um, from what, from what I'm hearing from you is that it was difficult because, you know, they weren't receiving mentorship from someone who had the experience that they needed um, to be successful. So I think that that's a really important important thing that you highlight there. Um, do you think from your research, was there anything that was, um, that seemed successful for these women? Like what, what worked well for them to help integrate them? Um, what were some things that they found supported them and made them more successful in their integration into their units? Yeah. I mean, definitely being physically fit. I think that most of the women who were successful were able to prove themselves that they were physically fit. But also, you know, I want to go back to what I said about mentorship, because I think this is really important. While, you know, having an inorganic policy like Leaders First to kind of instill mentorship didn't work, 
it's really, really important for all the women who have succeeded to have a support network with other women going through the same thing. Not something that's forced on them, uh, but something that they can like organically create because um, having that support and knowing that there are other women there who understand what you're going through is really important. I think where the unit, where the leader's first uh, policy failed is that kind of tried to force officers to be in a mentorship, uh, in a like type of mentorship relationship with enlisted. And I'll tell you from my own point of view, like I said, enlisted, like PFC, when I first came in, I would never ever have approached an officer and being like, hey, what's up? Can I tell you about what's going on with me? I just would never do it. Um, the only person that I would approach would be another fellow enlisted person. So I think creating those networks, the support networks for the women, both like, you know, officers and officers and enlisted and enlisted is really critical. That's not to say that there isn't a role for like officers to help um, the enlisted women, because there definitely is. I think that, but you have to be a more experienced officer where you're at a point in your career where you're willing to like stand up for the women and, you know, speak up and say, hey, this isn't okay, or just reach out um, as, a, as a leader and say, you know, if you're encountering anything, come to me. Like, uh, we're not talking about, you know, uh, the informal support network, but just formally offer your support um, to the enlisted women too. So support networks are really critical. You know, this is why um, it's we're really glad to have your perspective, because in speaking about the Leaders First policy, we've talked a lot about the burden it puts on young officers who are new to this environment as well. Uh, but we haven't talked a lot about exactly what you said, which is that the odds of an enlisted woman wanting to approach and be familiar and comfortable speaking with a female officer in the same unit about their personal struggles and the burdens they're bearing is very low. And so I'm glad you said that because we actually haven't really explored that side of things and um, it, make, it makes sense, obviously. So that is really interesting and I'm glad that we have your perspective on that. Can you talk to us and discuss, I don't know if you have hard statistics, but um, obviously you've spent some time with these women's experience. Can you talk to us about whether or not these women are generally having a positive experience staying in these combat MOSs and or if they're if they're not where they're going, what's happening with that? Yeah, I I don't have like hard statistics in front of me. Um, I think that you know the experiences vary. There is a good like section that have had. I mean, I wouldn't say they've all had good experiences, but I would say that they have uh, had made it through all the bad experiences come out the other end of being really successful and done well and have continued on their careers there are also some women who don't think that this is an environment that they should have to put up with right and they really shouldn't and so they said you know um that's not uh like i should be allowed to do my job with without all these people like constantly trying to block me or put obstacles in my path who don't want me to be successful on my job. And I feel that that's also a very valid viewpoint 
and you know they decided not to continue. And there are some women who have continued but are still struggling. So um, I, I like I said, I don't have the hard statistics. <laughs> We'd have to run the numbers and the research we've done, but it generally experiences fall, you know, in that range. Well, I think it's really interesting when you describe the reasons why some women were choosing to leave and that they they kind of recognized that they didn't want to put up with this space um, versus them and that like, you know, they're like, oh, I'm going to, you know, push through it or however they coped with it. Did you find um, in talking to these women, you know, what were the, for the women that were cho- choosing to leave, like what were all the reasons that they were like, hey, I, I don't want to stay in the military? Was it mostly just, you know, I don't want to deal with this environment just to be able to do my job or were there other reasons that you found um, in your, in your um, research? Yeah. Um, You know, there were some really hard reasons and uh, to be pretty straightforward, there were some women who were sexually assaulted and raped and got out. Um, There were some women who um, had a family and got out because um, they didn't think that was the right um, you know, the military was the best for them to uh, raise a family. And there were some other women who just, you know, uh, faced like, you know, injuries, physical injuries, et cetera, and got out. Um, so, and I'm speaking of uh, some of the enlisted women I've talked to. So there's a variety of uh, reasons for why they chose to get out. That really mirrors the experience of everyone we've spoken to, regardless of of rank, which is that there's obviously just many factors that go into that decision. And I think that is also true just across the board. I'm just curious if in your research and your experience, if you've come across any ways that the repeal of the policy has benefited enlisted service women, um, what are some positive things that have come from the repeal itself? The repeal of the policy has benefited the Army. Um, That is really what drove the repeal of the policy. If you look back, you know, in my time in, um, the Army needed women on the front lines in combat arms. And the way that the Army got around the policy was by attaching women to combat arms. But the experience in Iraq and the experience in Afghanistan showed that men simply did not have the access that women had to the population. Um, they, you know, the, um, they kept requesting women so that they could search other women in Iraq, so that they could search uh, women in Afghanistan. This is why we had the female engagement teams. This is why we had the lioness teams. This is why we had the cultural support teams. There was a very real capability gap on the ground that put the army behind in Afghanistan and Iraq. And that is the one and only reason the combat exclusion policy was lifted is because they saw a gap on the ground that was putting the military behind and they decided, hey, we need women here. So yes, the combat exclusion uh, policy, I wouldn't say has benefited enlisted women yet or enlisted uh, officers yet, but it 100% has benefited the army. Um, moving forward, I think it will benefit, once again, it will benefit the army because we will get women in higher leadership positions. You know, most of the uh, highest ranking generals have combat arms experience. 
So once we get women who have been in the pipeline for like a decade or two and get to those leadership positions, it will once again benefit the army and the military because you've got women with all this experience, diverse viewpoints and different sort of access and way of thinking, helping make the military and the army better. Yeah, I, I, I think it's really interesting that you bring that up because um, at the end of the day, the well, you, you are very practical in your assessment of the combat exclusion policy being lifted and that it was to the benefit of the United States Army and not necessarily all of its service members, but at the end of the day, it was to benefit the military. And so I, I think that is a very practical um, assessment. And I think you're right, though, too, that with, you know, it'll benefit the Army twice fold because now you'll have, you know, a more diverse team because women will climb the ranks and be able to serve as those flag officers now. Um, and so I think that... Um, to what extent it's benefited the individuals themselves versus the organization as a whole, I think is an interesting way of, of kind of framing that. So I appreciate you bringing that out. Um, and so I, um, my next question is, is kind of similar. And it's kind of back to that retention thing that we had talked about. You'd, you'd kind of mentioned the different reasons why women and women and service members were getting out of the military. You know, you mentioned sexual harassment, assault, you mentioned family planning, you know, you mentioned a slew of reasons why women would leave the military. And so what do you think something the military could be doing better to address these issues that are, you know, that were, that is causing us to lose this talent. And then where, like, what do you see as a way to retain those, retain those people? Yeah, I think that's an excellent question. I definitely think the mindset that, you know, <laughs> the military or the army is doing women a favor by lifting that combat exclusion policy or by having like better childcare policies or by, you know, uh, increasing parental or maternal um, uh, leave. Um, that's, you know, they're not doing anybody a favor. You got to take a look at their recruiting environment right now. About 71% or more of people don't even qualify to be in the army. And this army simply cannot afford to exclude women from its ranks. It's not, you know, um, I think this year they're not going to meet recruiting goals. So uh, you definitely have to expand the talent pool to that other 50% of the population if you're going to have an army that has enough people to be able to fight. So um, so when you do have these policies, you know, just like any other organization that's trying to recruit employees, um, you know, better childcare access. Um, I recall myself, I once had to wait like six months uh, to have my daughter at the, uh, the daycare in one of the posts I lived in. So um, she had to live with somebody else for six months until I could bring her over um, and she could go to the daycare. So, you know, better access to childcare, um, better access to uh, expanding parental leave, not just to women, but also men so that they're there to also be able to be with their kids and support them. Um, all, you know, even uh, better access, not just to birth control, but also, you know, leave, in, especially in the environment that we're in right now, if somebody needs to have an abortion, uh, making sure that those people have leave all these policies to benefit um, women really benefit the entire army. I think that's something that we are finding in this, which is that 
the the goal in repealing the policy was to improve our force and the result is especially long-term improving our force and so i'm glad that you highlighted that um unless joe's any questions after this in closing what is a piece of advice that you would give a new enlisted service woman who's going into a combat MOS? What do you think is something that would benefit them as they begin their time navigating that field? Yeah, absolutely. I think the biggest uh, piece of advice I would give them is uh, seek out that support network. Um, and it doesn't just have to be a support network of somebody who is you know, helping you deal with the tough times you're struggling with, but also seek up a support network of people who can help you succeed in your career. So, you know, if you're not that great at the range, find that person who's a really great uh, sharpshooter and have them mentor you. If you're not really good at like ruck marching, the person who can help you get better at it. Anything that you're not good at, in your job as infantry or armor, you need to go out there and seek the person who is good at it and ask them to help you. Um, so that support network of fellow people who can make you more technically proficient, um, as well as support you when you're struggling is so important. Yeah, I, I think that is really good advice, uh, especially in a combat arm sphere where there's a lot of pressure to perform and to be good at it immediately, that it's okay to go and seek help and to better yourself um, and to not put the pressure on yourself to figure it out by, by yourself. So I, I like that a lot. Um, I have one more question before we turn the floor over to you and, and that, and it's for the flip side, what would you want to tell junior leaders um, listening to this podcast or senior leaders listening to this podcast to better prepare the environment to be more inclusive um, so that our service women, especially our enlisted service members, um, have an environment where they can be successful? What, what would you want to tell them to do to help their enlisted service members? I think it's important to both understand that, the, uh, that you need to treat the women in your formation like you would treat any of the other men. But uh, on the flip side, also understand that they are women and that there are differences. So what I mean by that is that um, don't single out your soldiers just because they're women. Don't either give them harder jobs and don't give them easier jobs. Uh, don't either not mentor them because they're women or try to take advantage of your position by trying to get close to them because they're women. Um, just treat them like you would treat any other male soldier. But also understand that they are like the first women in this infantry and armor positions, that they are facing different uh, obstacles than any of the men face. And also, you know, at home, you know, uh, some of the officers may be married. Uh, some of the women have children. They have different responsibilities, too, than some of the men have because, you know, the men may have a wife at home who's taking care of the kids. And so they can work late till like 8 p.m. Um, so you have to both be cognizant of the gender differences, but also not treat people differently, either more harsh or more lenient because of the gender differences. Yeah, I think that um, that's really important advice. And it's something that 
will really benefit both junior members of the military and also senior leaders um, is just to know how to treat people equally. Um, there's a quote by General Dempsey that I just used, and I'm going to botch it here in paraphrasing it, which is that when you treat people equally, they tend to treat each other equally. And I think that's something that you brought light to just now. I think with that, we can go ahead and head toward closing and give the floor over to you. If you have anything that you would like to say, anything that you don't think we've fully covered that you would like to impart on our audience. I think that, you know, um, I have been beyond, beyond impressed by the women entering uh, infantry and uh, armor branches, both the officers and the enlisted women. <laughs> you know, <laughs> a lot of times people say, you know, like, oh, you have to have like uh, a good reason to join the infantry. You can't just join it. But then they only say that to women because when you ask men why you joined the infantry and they're like, so I could blow stuff up, right? So we never demand from men that they have a good reason to join combat arms. We just demand that from women. Uh, and But the thing is, all the women that I've talked to, they have like a great reason for joining. And not only do they have a great reason for joining, they are so impressive. Like what they've achieved uh, you know, at West Point, what they achieved in their personal lives, what, I mean, they're so physically fit, you know, honestly, when you look at the women coming into uh, the infantry and armor, they're like the best of the best. And, um, and I've seen like, so much, they've talked about so much that they have uh, gone through. And I swear to God, we, our entire country, owes them such a debt of gratitude that they would put themselves out there uh, you know they would crack this glass ceiling they would like batter the heads against so many walls and still be willing to stay in and keep fighting just for the opportunity to serve our country so um yeah that's just what i want to say uh, we have some incredible incredible women in the infantry and armor branches and our entire country should be so proud of them. Yeah, I really appreciate you saying that. I think that that will resonate with a lot of our, our listeners. And I think it's an important thing to highlight that at the end of the day, a lot of these women were facing an uphill battle and they, they, you know, they went out there and they, and they fought the fight and they, and they did the thing. And so I appreciate you highlighting that they really have paved the way for generations of other service members, men and women, um, and, and this new kind of new chapter of our army and our, our country. So I appreciate you highlighting that. I think that's pretty awesome. Um, well, I don't have any more questions and I think we're, we're at closing and we're just so thankful to hear from you and from the research that you've done. Um, I think it's awesome what you, the work you're doing and, and that you're interviewing these women and understanding their, their experiences and then capturing that. So thank you so much for sharing with us today. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. Hey folks, we hope you enjoyed today's episode. Please rate and review, subscribe and save. We want to reach as many people as possible and these small things make a huge difference in expanding our audience. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next week.